He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora koutou. I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to Insight. This week, can we find a way to keep declining stocks of whitebait in both our rivers and on our plates? All but one of the five species whose juveniles make up the whitebait catch are in decline or under threat. But why? Is it the whitebaiters who turn out in the early hours to trap the young fish in their nets? Or is it those that change the water quality in our streams and rivers and remove vegetation that once lined their banks? Insight's senior specialist reporter, Teresa Cowie, headed to the west coast to talk to whitebaiters about what they think is going wrong and what do freshwater scientists think the options are? Here they go, and a couple of cockaboys. This is nothing to write home about, but it's better than nothing. <laughs> I think Good how eye. many patties have we got there? Two patties? No. No? No, that's only about half a patty, half a West Coast patty. I've got to sit now. <laughs> yeah, that's the best I've seen all morning. I remember my first white bait net. Oh, I would have been eight, nine years old. It was a ten feet long piece of copper pipe with a hoop on it and mum's wedding dress as the net. Um, <laughs> and I remember stepping on the rocks down in Greymouth off the big rock and um, there was a shoal of white bait there and all I was looking at was that shoal of white bait and I kept on stepping on the rocks, getting more of the white bait, getting more of the, got the fever, got the fever, carried on white baiting, took another step and there wasn't another rock there. So I ended up in the drink, and I lost all my white bait. What do you like about white baiting? Open air, peace, quiet. It's just me, and I just enjoy being out, sitting here, trying to drag, being hopeful. <laughs> it means quite a lot, because it's uh, um, our people have been doing it for hundreds of years, so they've, they've needed to do it in the past just to survive. You know, they were eating it. You couldn't sell it, everyone ate it. There were no shops, we didn't have the money to go to the shop, so of course you live off the land or what you can harvest, rah, rah, rah. Yeah, it's real special to us. I was doing it from a young age, so you have the memories there, eh? You know, if your grandmother, you tow her down the river, probably five, six years old, learning from my tower um, how to white bait. But how long white baiting will continue to build memories for those fishing and those eating is uncertain. For those West Coasters, white baiting is more than just a feed for the family or a bit of extra money in their wallets. It's a way of life and an important part of their identity as coasters. But these tiny fish that like to catch a lift up river on the incoming tide to their breeding grounds every spring are under threat exactly what's causing the decline in numbers and when in their life cycle they're most at risk is largely unresearched. Of the five species whose juveniles make up the whitebait catch, the native banded kōkapu appears to have healthy populations. Giant kōkapu, inanga and kōaro are in decline, while short-jaw kōkapu are threatened. Jane Goodman, a freshwater ecologist with the Department of Conservation, says most of the five species breed upriver in the autumn, but Inanga, one of those in decline, spawns in the lowlands. 
so the adults live in fresh water and then they migrate down to the saltwater wedge where the seawater and freshwater meet and the adults spawn their eggs just above um, the saltwater wedge in a spring tide. They spawn their eggs, um, the eggs stick to the bottom of some vegetation and the adults generally die of the inanga or um, might survive a little bit longer or get eaten by eels and then the water retreats, the eggs develop for probably about four weeks. Then once there's another big spring tide, the water goes back out to those eggs and um, hopefully they've developed enough to hatch out and then the larval uh, fish go out into the ocean. Uh, once the fish have been out for about yeah four to six months, they swim back up in the spring as juvenile fish, which is um, where people catch them as whitebait. If they get past the whitebait nets, then they continue swimming upstream. For those who like to indulge in a whitebait patty, as it's known on the west coast, fritters is the preferred name elsewhere, the fish life cycle does have a definite end point, usually involving a collection of silvery eyes staring up from their hot, eggy graves on a soon-to-be-empty plate. For whitebait lovers, simply delicious. So we just put a little bit of oil on top of the hot plate, then we'll just put our white bait on top, make it into a nice wee patty. Two patty swiss, sizzling away. They don't take very long to cook, because if you, um, if you cook it too long, it just dries the white bait out. So you want to keep it nice and moist anyway. At Porky's Takeaways on Hokitika's main street, its owner Kelvin Taylor serves up coast-sized patties for tourists. Um, it's a delicacy. It's a, it's a New Zealand delicacy. Um, West Coast ha- um, has a short season for 10 weeks of the year. So um, we get to fish for it on the 1st of September till the 14th of November. And our catches are, are quite... We have big catches here on the West Coast, but our season is way shorter than everyone else's. But what are whitebait? The tiny fish caught each spring by whitebaiters are the juveniles of the five species of adult whitebait, also known as migratory galaxides, a name inspired by the sparkling flecks that pattern their skin like a galaxy of stars. Scientists say adult whitebait, which, depending on the species, can grow from anywhere between 10 and 60 centimetres, are just not being seen in the upper reaches of rivers in the numbers they used to. And with three species in decline and one threatened, the days of tucking into this spring delicacy may be numbered. A recent report looking at what is and isn't known about why they're in decline can identify some things that may be putting them at risk. But with the current level of understanding, scientists can't pinpoint exactly what poses the greatest threat. Jane Goodman says the nets that line rivers for three months every spring are not the only obstacle to the successful breeding of whitebait. We probably don't know how much of an impact fishing is having on on the whitebait species. But again, common sense says that if you take something, it's going to have some effect, but how big that effect is comparatively to habitat and fish passage barriers is not really known. And... Another big one that people are talking about at the moment is climate change in terms of uh, water levels, water temperatures increasing. And I guess the shift of, you know, with sea level rise, if that will change where the spawning and adult habitat is. 
um, I think, water abstraction, so taking water out to, um, so you've got less water in stream. And sometimes it affects the timing and frequency and duration of different um, flooding uh, water levels. And Do you mean what, irrigation? Yeah, abstracting water for irrigation is one example. This keen white baiter and Hokitika local is worried, though, that the easiest and most obvious way to try and reverse the decline is to tighten regulation on white baiting so those juveniles have a chance of making it upriver to breed. My name is Des McInerney. I'm the immediate past president of the West Coast Whitebaiters Association. I was in office for approximately 10 years. How many years have you been whitebaiting for? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose I started when I was 11. I had a bit of a, a, a gap, and uh, then for the last 30 years, anyhow. As we mount the quad bike and head to his favourite whitebaiting spot at a secret location near the town... He talks about his worry that the government will just pick on white baiters instead of looking at the whole picture. You can regulate till your hat comes off. If you do not address those core issues, you have wasted your time. And I'm worried that the politicians will pick up on an easy out that does not cost them a lot of money and do not properly address the problems facing the bait when they go into breed. And that's not the fishing. That easy out is the harvesting of the white bait, you think? Because we can do that quite quickly and quite easily, and it's a feel-good scene, but the real issue fails to be addressed. And that means that the white bait go on and can't find anywhere to breed. The Department of Conservation puts the decline down to intensification of farming and building developments near waterways, leading to a lack of clean, tree-shaded rivers and streams for the adult fish to lay their eggs in. It says barriers like dams and culverts in our roading network block whitebait from reaching their breeding grounds upriver. Introduced fish like trout also prey on whitebait and muscle them out of their habitat. Climate change, bringing rising water temperature, extreme weather and flooding, which changes the physical shape of their breeding grounds, is also thought to be making an attack on whitebait's ability to thrive. The government is currently asking whitebaiters what the next step could be to try and preserve the thawinga of our waterways. Okay, uh... Questions from, or statements from the board, so who wants to go first? Yeah, yeah what well, I'd like to suggest to the meeting, I feel that the whitebait regulations in the rest of New Zealand are totally out of kilter what's happening on the west coast. And I feel that the pictures... At this session in Hokitika, about 30 people turned up to a dock-run drop-in discussion centre at a local hall. While the west coast is famous for whitebait, it's fished for around much of New Zealand's coast. At the 12 sessions held around the country, 400 people with an interest in whitebaiting made their voices heard, and about 2,500 have filled in a survey looking at improving whitebait management. The information gathered at the sessions and in the survey will be used to advise the Minister on the next steps for turning around the decline. The sentiment at the Hokitika meeting was that even though the effects of whitebaiting is unknown, it's whitebaiters who'll be made to bear the brunt of regulation, because it's an easier hit than farmers and those responsible for harming whitebait habitat. 
I asked the Conservation Minister, Eugenie Sage, if whitebaiters are right to think they'll be picked on because other changes are more expensive and harder to do. No, uh, I've asked the Department of Conservation to do an issues and options document to and get public feedback on that around what are the key issues on ensuring that we have healthy whitebait populations and a sustainable fishery. We know there are issues like culverts, um, obstacles in rivers and streams which block fish passage uh, to and from the sea. We know there are issues like degradation of spawning sites. It's absolutely critical to keep stock out of streams so that those riparian areas have got long vegetation that enables the eggs to um, stick in and the whitebait to spawn properly. So it's looking at all of these issues and what are the best measures that we can put in place to ensure we have a healthy populations and a sustainable fishery. But is it likely that there will be some extra regulation around the harvesting of the whitebait once we've got to the end of this process? Well, I've yet to see the issues and options documents, so I'm not going to um, predict what's going to be in it. I'm Teresa Cowie, and you're listening to an RNZ Insight programme looking at the decline of whitebait. Cindy Barker is a principal scientist of freshwater fish at the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. She's prepared a paper for the Conservation Authority into what the potential options are for making changes to the regulation around fishing for whitebait. Dr Barker says there's no evidence that commercial or recreational whitebaiting is having an effect on the fishery. Her report recommends white baiters are asked to get a licence and fill in a catch diary so that gaps in the knowledge around what's causing the decline can start to be filled. What we were suggesting was um, not a revenue gathering exercise but just some a token sort of licensing fee that every white baiter would pay and in order to get a licence they would be providing a catch per unit effort diary. And that way we would have an understanding of the number of white baiters that are on each river and the pressure that the river is, is having um, in terms of fishing and then also the catches that we have in terms of the number of white bait that's being caught relative to the effort for different river systems. And that would give us a good baseline for measuring different changes against, and that would be future changes to regulations um, as well as changes that we're making by increasing the amount of habitat, uh, spawning habitat, rearing habitat, and basically reducing migration barriers. So those are another key factors uh, for the conservation of the fishery. How reliable would that data be, do you think? Well, whitebaiters are notorious for not wanting to say how much they're catching. But essentially, to my knowledge, it's the only commercial fishery that isn't monitored in terms of catches. And even for our eel fishery, there's a catch per unit effort diary that each fisherman produces um, and gives to the ministry. But this woman, who was whitebaiting with her handheld net at the mouth of the Hokitika River, is vehemently against the idea of having to get a licence. Yeah, I wouldn't. I'd just come and get a feed. Stupidity. How are they going to police it? They're not. They're not going to police it at all. You know, if you've got a trench, fair enough. But, yeah, just to come down to catch a feed, I mean, that's ridiculous. Absolutely. I'm sorry, but, yeah. yeah. And so would you be willing to take the risk of just come down with your scoop if there was a, a licence? If there was four or five of us. <laughs> yeah, if there's four or five people, what are they going to do? Nothing. Am I? Doc, a worse. Now, the people were white-baiting illegally over there the other week, and it took them nearly two hours to come down to get them. You know? They just, nah, you can't. You can't police it. 
She's referring there to people who are trying to white bait in a creek off the river, which has been made out of bounds so some white bait can have a fighting chance of making it to their breeding grounds. And that sort of behaviour is driven by the prices white bait fetch. At upwards of $80 a kilogram, white bait is a luxury good and an easy side earner for anyone who can get their hands on a net and a copy of the tide chart. But some white baiters say there are more people flooding into the area to make a quick buck, and that creates an element of greed over a feed. Des McEnany says a licence for white baiters could help. About six, seven years ago now, there was a, um, a survey, we undertook a survey of white baiters right across the west coast, and there was a majority who were in favour of the idea of licensing. So, so licensing of white baiters is, 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 is not an adverse issue. There's two things that come out of it. The first is, what's the cost of it, and where does the money go? that's gathered from the white baiting. So if the money goes back into research and so forth, then white baiters would be quite happy. Also for the, the, the people who constantly offend and so forth that are no friend to anybody, if they're caught in that nature and their licences are revoked, then they just stop operating. So that's a deterrent to the people who just want to be illegal or are just out there for plunder. You want to shift my bucket, Diaz? I have you. That would be a bit upsetting if the bucket was a white bait and it got oh, taken it's, away. It's happened. <laughs> happened to me once, a long time ago. His partner Janice, who's sworn me to secrecy on the location of where they're white baiting today, says there's no chance she'd be getting a licence or filling in a catch diary. I don't know if I bothered to tell them how much I caught if I had a good catch. No, I wouldn't. Why not? <laughs> because there'll be a lot of people wouldn't tell them exactly how much they've caught. Mm-hmm. If you caught ten tonne, would you tell them? They say no, I'd caught two. <laughs> <laughs> two white bait. Two, ten, two yeah, okay, two tonne. Two <laughs> white bait. <laughs> no, you, I, no. And catch diaries, I imagine they'd want you to reveal your secret white baiting locations as well. Well, good Would you be happy to do that? No. On paper? No. <laughs> I wouldn't tell them a damn thing, to be perfectly honest. She says if the government wants data, it can send its own researchers to gather it. When they're willing to get out here and sit on the river mouth or river bank in the freezing cold, pouring down rain, pitch black, then they can tell me what to do and what not to do. But her partner, Des McEnany, who's standing up on the beach beside her organising some gear, has a different idea. So do you, do you think people would fill in their catch diaries accurately? With locations and how much they've caught? Y- yes, they would if they knew, A, it was treated as confidential and it didn't come back to bite them. Uh, if it wasn't used as a, as a system of quota, then they would be quite happy. Mm-hmm. And we need the goodwill of white baiters because we need the research. And it's absolutely, the research is absolutely vital to us to be able to commit to what we need to do and to be able to measure how much success we're having as we're actually working on these programs that will address the issues of white baiting. Mm. Why do white baiters like to keep that information private in general, though? Well, uh, 
I guess one of the things is if you've got a nice little river like this one that won't be named because I'd have to shoot you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got it, I've got it. Is that people get to hear there's a good catch going on at such and such a river and so forth, and the next thing it's flooded and whitebaiters. Dock freshwater scientist Jane Goodman says while many fishers have been willing to give data gathering a go in the past, she doubts catch data would be particularly robust. If everyone was willing to give us their data and wrote down how they captured it, because of course you know you can catch it with a, a scoop net or a, a sock net with a trap, or you know you might be catching it on an incoming tide, or a, um, you know there's all those different factors, and then the the weather and then the different species so there's a lot of different things so yeah the mind boggles as to how you would get fisher people to be able to take down all that information businessman robert hutton is hoping his company can be part of efforts to turn the whitebait decline around he's the chief executive of new zealand whitebait limited a company hoping to farm whitebait so it can be sustainable and available in restaurants all year round. So the process for us to produce whitebait starts back at the broodstock. We use uh, giant kokopo because giant kokopo um, has um, the longest life cycle of all the five galaxia species. Um, it can produce at five years of age to six years of age seven to eight kilograms worth of eggs per year. So for 30 years, so it becomes a commercially viable product. Once a year, the white bait come into season and um, we milk the eggs off the females um, and the sperm off the, the males. Um, we mix that all through, through a system and put the... Um, eggs into an incubation system where they're in that system for 21 days. Now this system is all in fresh water and it's fresh water um, chilled to a certain degree of temperature. Everything is critical that we do. Um, From there we crack the eggs out into salt water um, into our salt water tanking facilities. From there we go through a particular feeding cycle that allows them to grow naturally Um, and after three months they are ready for harvesting. He's hoping to produce about 100 tonnes of whitebait a year. That amount would sell for about $8 million in shops and restaurants. He's hoping that farming whitebait will take the pressure off fishing for it in the rivers. But as he tries to get his project off the ground, he's hesitant about appearing to be in competition with those fishing for it from the rivers. I, I suppose we don't want to be sitting out there viewed upon as being um, the enemy. Um, we're growing whitebait and, um, and other people are catching whitebait. What we're looking at doing is we're looking to take the, the stress off the natural catch. The natural catch will always be there. Uh, we don't see, I don't see it disappearing. Um, however, um, there's several hundred tonne, I believe, being caught every year, and if we can produce 100 tonne to take the stress off that industry, we are doing a good thing. Well, with a species in decline, though, don't you think those people paying top dollar in Auckland and Wellington restaurants might be heading towards wanting to have farmed whitebait rather than the stuff caught out of the river? I think you've got to leave that up to the customer. But if farmed whitebait becomes the choice of city dwellers attuned to the origin of their food, it wouldn't just be the West Coast's large commercial whitebaiting operations that might take a hit. 
The white-baiting season is a big part of the local economy, with some people moving there for the duration of the season. Local businesses rely on these visitors spending their money in the pubs, shops, camping grounds and motels, giving their coffers a welcome boost until the overseas tourists arrive during the warmer months. Robert Hutton says his plan to open a whitebait farm in Westport would help create both a sustainable fishery and a more sustainable economy. I, I think any commercial operation that is set up in Westport uh, is going to ho- hopefully help uh, employment, which generally helps the rest of the public. Um, and we see a lot of opportunities in the tourist market, in the process market, in the transport market. Um, it really is a stretch for the dollar. Um, And we've got to do it right. I suppose we're at the ambulance at the top of the cliff, not at the bottom of the cliff. We have a chance to support the endangered species, and we're better off starting now. Robert Hutton says his company has already been releasing farmed species back into the wild. So I asked Doc Freshwater scientist Jane Goodman how much of a difference she thinks farmed whitebait could make. I mean, it possibly could help if if it meant there was less pressure on um, wild whitebait, but... We don't really know what the impacts of fishing is on the whitebait species as they move upstream. So, yeah, I'm not sure. And I guess the other thing to think about, which I have no idea about, is um, the demand for, I guess, farmed versus wild whitebait. Are there ecological issues with mixing farm species with natural, or any implications? I mean, that sounds like a good cure for the problem. Farm some, stick them in the river. Potentially, if you thought about it really carefully and you sourced fish from um, the regions where you were going to restock them, then maybe. Uh, but you'd also have to think about uh, disease as well in terms of, you know, you have to be pretty careful of not transferring any diseases out into the wild populations by introducing farmed fish. Des McInerney says a local group, the West Coast Sustainable Whitebait Fishery Project has partnered with the Department of Conservation and other government agencies to try to find out what else can be done. But he says the project was initially estimated to cost $1.2 million, but they were only granted 124000 and that's holding it back. He says understanding more about whitebait decline and reversing it is going to cost money. We have done all the research, we have the best of scientific information, we have done the surveys of rivers and waterways and breeding sites and have set up a programme whereby we can address the issues that have been found. The big problem is, is getting the money. Money train becomes the real problem for us. Now, this is a New Zealand first exercise and it makes a, a very good model for the rest of the country to pick up and follow. But if you do not put the resources behind it, then you have wasted your time. The Conservation Minister, Eugenie Sage, says her preference is that the work is done in-house at DOC and she won't commit to any funding until the public consultation is complete. Consultation and the survey on the future of whitebait management will close to the public on January 7th next year. That programme was written and presented by Insight's Senior Specialist Reporter Teresa Cowie with technical production by William Saunders. If you'd like to discover more Insight documentaries, you can head to our podcast page at rnz.co.nz forward slash insight. Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Next week, Insight heads into a youth justice facility to find out how well they are doing at turning around young people's lives and how will they deal with the increased numbers coming their way when the age limit goes up to 18. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's all from Insight. Join us again next time.